0: I wanted to make the world safe for a, academic facial plastic surgeons. In other words, we were kind of thought of as uh, the black sheep of the otolaryngology family because we didn't really do good science and you know, everything was about showing pretty pictures. And-
1: Welcome to the second episode of the Rhino Plastic Podcast. I am so excited for our speaker tonight. He's brought us through the generous sponsorship of the first month from MedHold. make Medicon instruments in South Africa. And uh, the first time I met this man or listened to him speak was more than five years ago over in America, and I was blown away by a few things. The first thing was that he was so scientific in what he did because often people just speak about, oh, in my hands, this is the results. But this was someone who wasn't interested in that. He really wanted to teach, and it's a passion for teaching that has led me to invite him to be our second guest he also is very intricate in the involvement of the evidence-based research and rhinoplasty group, and it's a great honor and privilege to have someone who's come all the way from California. Sam Moist, thank you very much for being a part of this talk.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Cameron. Um, so, I mean, that's very generous of you to say. I have to say that uh, I remember um, meeting you a few years ago at a meeting I think it was through uh, Dr. Jeff Marcus also that we personally got to meet. Um, and I've been thoroughly impressed with uh, the energy that you brought to the rhinoplasty world uh, in the past year. And it's just really incredible everything you've done with Rhinoplasty world rhinoplasty day and to have the energy to do this. Um, I really give you kudos for that and, and thank you very much for having me.
1: Great. Right. So Sam, I wanna kick off now. I mean, we we're sitting in South Africa So my first question to you is, you're the Chief of Facial Plastic Surgery in Stanford. How many residents are studying otolaryngology at Stanford?
0: We have five residents a year uh, studying otolaryngology right now. Um, Our program is uh, really quite large uh, by standards here in the US. That's about, I think, the maximum of any program per year. And it's a five-year program. So I guess there are about 25 uh, or so residents.
1: And is that 25 residents in total for the entire otolaryngology degree? Yes, at Stanford. So so that's quite something, because in South Africa we're less than 50 in our whole country at eight different universities. <laughs> yeah, different, a little different. So so t- tell me, Sam, how did you end up where you're at? Uh, do you want the long story or the, the short story? <laughs> <laughs> I want the interesting story. I mean, h- how do you end up well, being a professor at Stanford University? That's just amazing. Oh,
0: that that you know, I I, uh, I try not to take it for granted, and I uh, I think it's really an incredible environment to be in. Um, I uh, I did my medical school training here uh, many years ago, too many years ago, and then I went off to uh, Seattle to do my training in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and then facial plastic surgery, and. um I was fortunate uh, also to be hired at that point, really young, right out of fellowship as a division director in facial plastic surgery, just how the timing worked. Um, and about four years later, uh, after I was on faculty there, um, we had a new chairman start a new department here at Stanford in otolaryngology. And I was recruited back uh, to come uh, and uh, sort of build a facial plastic surgery division that covers the breadth. Uh, uh, reconstructive and aesthetic surgery that we had at University of Washington. And uh, it's it's really been um, just gratifying to see how the whole department and my division's grown.
1: Yeah, I tell you, I mean, I'm glad you say you don't take it for granted because we actually share a little bit in common in that it's actually my three year anniversary from when I nearly passed away from um, septicemia. Mm-hmm. And I know that about a year ago, you got really sick with COVID.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure it compares to to, to what you've been through, uh, Cameron. But um, So, yeah, it was probably um, a week from now is about when I probably was exposed. And, uh, you know, at that time, um, there were probably 10 cases in the Bay Area of San Francisco. So it wasn't something we were really too worried about. There were no precautions. The whole world was wide open. Nobody, you know, so if you think about what we do, looking at people's faces and things without masks, it's... It's, uh, it's a high risk thing and uh, we never found out how I picked it up. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, we're coming up on uh, a year uh, soon uh, for my hospitalization and uh, it was a harrowing experience.
1: Well, we're all very happy that you're back and you're stronger than ever before <laughs> and uh, you're adding so much more to rhino, the rhinoplasty world. So before we climb into a bit more of the rhinoplasty stuff, um, one more question. I know, I mean, I follow you on Instagram and you do a lot of reconstructive facial plastic surgery as well. Yes. I think sometimes we get very focused on just like rhinoplasty and facial plastics. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys get up to.
0: Well, um, you know, another passion of mine uh, is to do skin cancer reconstruction, particularly forehead flap surgery. Uh, and it's sort of related to rhinoplasty in a way. And sometimes I post about this. I think that. Um, Really, it makes you a better rhinoplasty surgeon to understand how to reconstruct the internal lining and the framework of the nose as well as the external Mm -hmm. lining with the forehead flap. And so Mm -hmm. I continue to have a passion for that. And the other skin cancer reconstruction around the face requires a certain amount of um, creativity, which I find stimulating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of uh, gratification from the patients uh, as well. So I really enjoy doing that work. It's a great uh, it's a great thing to do. Yeah. In, in addition to, that, to I that. that, I want to also point out. In addition to that, <laughs> one thing it's the one year anniversary is is passing right now for the our usual our annual mission to Cambodia, where we do uh, reconstructive microsurgery uh, and uh, cleft lip palate surgery as a team. Uh, I don't specialize in cleft lip palate, uh, but I do microsurgery too out there, and uh, so uh, it's uh, it's something we missed this year because of COVID, and we're hoping to do again about a year from now.
1: Yeah, I really hope that happens for you. I also noticed you love being outdoors with your dog. Ooh. What do you get up to when you're not um, doing facial plastic surgery?
0: Well, right there up over my shoulder, there's a, there's a fish. I don't know if you can see it. A couple of uh, salmon and a, and a, and some actually net frame or some, some uh, flies that I tied myself. Uh, I really enjoy fly fishing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when, when I'm outdoors, that's what I really like to do. But um, really spending time with my family and of course my dog. You don't see pictures of my family on Instagram much because I don't like to post that. But you see lots of pictures of Jerry, the German Shepherd.
1: Yeah, well, we're going to have to get you out here to come fly fish with me because I also love it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll, nice. we'll do it. Okay, so 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 Sam, let's let's talk a little bit about those the the listeners who are potential patients. If I could ask you for maybe the three most important things you like telling patients preoperatively in terms of rhinoplasty surgery.
0: The most important things I think are to um, first be able to communicate with your doctor about what you're interested in and have some, I think, have some sort of concrete understanding of, of what uh, what you'd like. Um, it doesn't. It's not possible to go down to the millimeter and guarantee things, but if you don't understand mm-hmm. each other in terms of what your plan is and communicate well, then you shouldn't proceed. Um doesn't matter how great the surgeon is or how great a person you are as a patient, um, mm-hmm. that communication mm-hmm. has to be there. And sometimes it just isn't. Uh, secondly, for everybody, you always have to think about the limits of what can be done surgically uh, and the impact it can have on breathing. So... Um, you know, not everyone's nose uh, can be changed into something that you see on Instagram or social media or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not possible all the time. Uh, and and finally, uh, I think that 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 for for patients, just having realistic expectations is really important. And and that yes. sort of falls on both parties. They really, you know, I really feel like I need to always do a better job communicating and make sure that patients understand what's possible and what isn't.
1: Awesome. Well, Sam, I want us to dig into some rhinoplasty topics. I'm very excited about the three topics we're going to cover tonight, um, because it's really something I want to incorporate in my practice. Is this this structural and preservation rhinoplasty and how to marry them, and then also evidence-based medicine. And uh, I want to talk later when we get to the patient-related outcome measures and, and questionnaires, because it's something that I really I've been Playing around with in the practice, but I'm going to ask you to, to share your screen and then sure. climb into the first topic that you want to chat to us about.
0: Absolutely. Okay.
1: So, Sam, whilst you're getting that ready, mm-hmm. um, on an average week, how much time do you spend in theater and how much time do you spend consulting? Um,
0: there we're ready to go. On an average week, uh, I will spend uh, about um, two days in the office doing consults and three days operating.
1: Awesome.
0: Okay, can you Crazy. see this? Is this showing
1: up? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay,
0: great. So, yeah, so
1: I, I I remind you that uh, as there are quite a few people who might not be watching it on YouTube, you, this is going to be more difficult. You're going to have to try and imagine this is just a podcast. And so describe maybe some of the slides, but I'll chat as we go along as well.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So for our first topic, I thought maybe we should go ahead and start talking about different ways of doing dorsal hump reduction. I think for, for potential patients out there, uh, so they can understand what we're talking about when we say uh, dorsal preservation uh, and preservation rhinoplasty versus uh, Joseph production rhinoplasty and when and how to choose potentially which way to go. This is one, That would be more for the, for the surgeons out there. Uh, and um, I can be found at these, you know, on Instagram and Facebook, uh, primarily Instagram if people have questions. And, you know, the first thing I want to really point out is I, I'm not going to really take credit for, for anything you see or, or hear here because these concepts are well published and have been around for many years. I'm gonna talk about some things, some modifications and perhaps some ideas that I have. Uh, but I think that, that credit needs to be given all around. And these are two uh, potential references. This preservation rhinoplasty textbook uh, by Daniel and chekier here and so on is good. And this recent issue of Facial Plastic Surgery Clinics Uh, is also uh, excellent for this. Um, And there are a couple of uh, papers you can get to if you want that talk about the specific things I'm talking about. The one on the left in Facial Plastic Surgery, Aesthetic Medicine, which is an excellent journal. And and of course I'm biased as an associate editor. uh, is is free download, it's open access. We made it that way so you can uh, have access to it if you want. Um, So, Again, I want to give credit to my colleagues who brought me along in this regard because I've really only been doing this procedure this way for about a couple of years now. And the first time I heard this uh, idea of dorsal preservation, it wasn't called that, it was called the letdown versus pushdown operation. It was um, Fausto Lopez Ulloa and Jose uh, um, Montez Bracchini, Mexico City, talking about it in Portland uh, in 2003, 4 And I thought it sounded like the craziest idea. I'd never heard of this. I didn't know any history behind it. But in the last few years, it's had a resurgence uh, in many ways because people like Olivier Garibald in in France has brought along piezo use, ultrasonic uh, saw use, and rhinoplasty, full open bony work. Um, And Yves sabana has been doing this method for his whole career in France, and Baris checker picked it up in the last eight years or so and sort of began popularizing it again, and my friend Goxel in Istanbul as well. So I wanna make sure that I give credit to all those guys. And this idea of um, preservation rhinoplasty is a term that was coined by Roland Daniel in his um, efforts to uh, sort of repopularize it, if you will. Uh, and it refers to <clears throat> preservation of potentially three different areas. Uh, this is an image taken from his paper with Eric Cousins. Uh, it's a Venn diagram uh, showing uh, PRD, which is preservation of the dorsum, PRS, which is soft tissue skin envelope, SSTE, or the ALA, uh, the alar cartilages, which is PRA. Uh, and uh, so full preservation would mean preservation of all three of these things, whereas dorsal preservation is just the one. And that's primarily what I do as well as alar preservation, which, as we'll talk about, is something that um, we've been doing for, for about 12, uh, 13 years. Um, so just to give a little history for, for those of you who are beginners or perhaps just patients out there, this idea of preservation of the, of the bony cartilaginous fault or osseocartilaginous fault, which is this whole big structure of the nose, is an old idea. Uh, it goes back to the very beginnings of rhinoplasty at the end of the 19th century, uh, and the first publication in that regard came from Goodale, uh, and, uh, these sort of grainy photographs, uh, show a four month post-op, uh, here of a patient who had a hump take down with, uh, with this idea of a push down, which, so just to, just to kind of help people visualize what we're talking about, I'll get into the diagrams a little bit. We're talking about moving the nose backwards into the face rather than cutting the top off, which is a, um, different way of doing things. In, uh, in 1914, Lothrop, uh, also in Boston, as Goodale was, described a similar version of this where he resected bone posteriorly and moved the whole, the whole nose inward. So these publications are out there. And, you know, it was, it was Maurice Cottle, uh, who was a famous uh, otolaryngology slash rhinology slash rhinoplasty surgeon, um, uh, who in the mid-20th century kept this idea going uh, of uh, doing the surgery that way versus Jacques Joseph, who uh, uh, actually an originally orthopedic surgery trained a person who became sort of the father of modern facial plastic and plastic surgery, did uh, another way of pump takedown, which is to take the top off of the nose and then move it uh, sort of medially. And, And so I'm going to show this diagrammatically. And for those of you who don't have video, I'll try to describe what I'm showing here in these slides. But what we have here are the the top right uh, next to Joseph's picture is a, is a diagram of a nose uh, and a cross-section plane showing what we're looking at in the center of the screen, which is sort of a, a pyramidal uh, structure with a strut going down the middle. You can also think of it as a sort of a Roman arch with a central a central post. Uh, and when you do a Joseph Hump production, uh, what you do is you basically take the top off, as shown here in this diagram, just showing the top being cut off. And if you imagine that you took the top off of a pyramidal structure, you'd end up with a flat top. Uh, And depending on how much you took off, it could be much wider. And so you couldn't just leave it like that. It would look kind of odd. So you have to uh, make some cuts. We call them osteotomies. uh, Medially, which is sort of towards the middle and laterally towards the sides of the nose, break the bones, and then you have to move them towards the center to get once again uh, a narrower uh contour across the bridge. Uh, and this was the way it was done for you know many, many years. And the, the Joseph School kind of became the dominant school in the United States. Uh, and it was in the 1970s that Jack Sheen realized that complications arose if you do not reconstruct the mid-vault. And that's shown here uh, in this diagram showing the top of that pyramid where that Roman arch is putting a couple of uh, spacers, if you will, called spreader graphs to make that uh, make that look more normal and also preserve the, the ability to breathe. Um, so how does that differ from preservation? As I said, preservation is really kind of moving the whole thing backwards into the face, rather than cutting the top off. Uh, and in this diagram, I'm showing where this red line is kind of shows where the cuts would be around the bone and the arrow points into the way you would impact the, uh, the dorsum into the, uh, into the face. Um, and the difference between a push down and a let down is in, in a push down, if I say that we're not resecting any bone, we're just moving it into the face. So you can imagine the bone overlaps versus in the let down, it, it, uh, you remove some bone as shown in that dark red area and then it just kind of settles into position. Um, so those push down and let down operations are the two main ways of dealing with the bone and those haven't changed much. Uh, but there are some variations in the way you address the septum. Uh, and the original method by Caudill, uh is shown here diagrammatically in a, in a diagram shown. Um, I'm sorry, drawn by uh, my artist Chris Greilich, who's really outstanding. And you can see here. Uh, and it's difficult to describe to those who um, are watching this, uh, just listening. It's it's sort of like you're cutting a section of the septum and rotating it forward and down and pulling the top down with it because it stays attached if you can imagine that. And so the shaded areas here are what we remove, and then this cartilage rotates forward. This is uh, actually a video of a cadaver dissection with the nose opened up so you can see what's happening in this. The lab dissection was actually done by Valerio uh, at the rhinoplasty meeting in Istanbul, and then I played with the specimen afterwards and did this recording myself. So those are my hands there. But just showing here is this is how it works. You pull that septum forward, and push down on the dorsum and flatten it out. A Couple things to notice is if you look just underneath my finger there, there's a step off. That's one of the concerns you have with this technique right at the radix. Uh, So you wanna try to avoid too much drop there. And when you pull this up and forward, you end up with extra length and there's tension on it. So you need to secure it to the nasal spine. Um, The Saban method, which is uh, sort of Goya's method, is just to resect right underneath Uh, the dorsum on the septum directly underneath it, just scrape it off and then push it down. Uh, And this is a cross section here showing that. Now in this case, you'll notice that we're not taking the top off of the Roman arch, we're actually keeping it. And that is probably the central concept, I think, of the advantage uh, that I'd like to say is the difference between these two techniques. That, you imagine the strength of a Roman arch, it's that upper part, the way those pieces fit together. You're not disrupting it. Uh, You're actually just keeping that and, and moving it back into the face. And so push down operation will look like this. And you can see here, there's some overlap of bone, um, which can get into airway issues as we'll describe later. Versus a letdown operation, the same thing happens to the septum, but the bone is resected at the base and the whole thing drops down into position. Uh, And so uh, that is actually, um, has been shown, uh, at least in in our cadaver studies, to have a better result for airway preservation uh, compared to the push down.
1: You have any questions about all that? No, it's Anything? very well explained. Excellent. I'm, I'm very interested to see what the indications are, but I also want to know what are the uh, do not attempt this in this type of a nose.
0: Yeah, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna. I thought we comes. should talk about that yeah. a little bit. Um, of course, this is also a big topic, but I'll talk about some generalities here. Um, the things you need to really do are, are profile analysis, uh, profile type, which we'll talk about, and bony vault length uh and on the frontal view really the key is dorsal static lines and dorsal width and presence of asymmetry and if it's asymmetric how is it asymmetric and is it something that will be advantageous or disadvantageous to do with a uh, preservation dorsal preservation <clears throat> and so this is a picture of my patient but i'm adapting this um from one of carlos neves's slides uh, which he showed very nicely i think the key areas to look at are in profile analysis the radix uh depth of the radix the keystone um width uh, symmetries, any issues there uh, and then the super tip if there's a if there's a big drop or not and there are two main types of, uh, of dorsums that, that preservation rhinoplasty surgeons sort of talk about, V shape versus S shape which is, it's somewhat arbitrary to be honest with you, I think the things to think about it are if the radix is very deep with a very acute angle at the hump uh, or whether it's more S, uh, whether it's more um, S shape like a Deep curve. Uh, Let let me say that again. I think the key things uh, to think about are whether the radix is very deep, which sounds like it ought to be a V-shape, but it's really more S-shape because of the the depth of it. uh, And that's shown on the right versus a V-shape gentle curve uh, without a really deep radix. Uh, And so, as I said, these are somewhat arbitrary. And so, um, I think that some other factors come into it uh, in terms of how you judge whether or not patients ought to have this done. Uh, Bony ball length is is, is a key indicator, uh, I think. And patients with shorter nasal bones, uh, as shown on the left side of the screen, are probably better candidates because there's more cartilaginous flexibility uh, when you do this procedure and less bony flexibility. So if the bones are very long, such as in the patient on the right, really not a great uh, person to do uh, complete osteocartilaginous preservation. Uh, And this is shown um, kind of in this nice slide from uh, Aaron and and, uh, Rollins paper that I mentioned earlier where they did ultrasounds and you can see here that they're at the radix osteotomy site on the right side of the screen, you can see that there's a drop off. Uh, And so this is hidden by the thick skin. Uh, so you don't really completely flatten that curve. If you look at the curve of the dorsum on the left and the curve on the right, it is not completely flat. Uh, and so if you have a very acute angle, you're not going to be able to flatten it enough to get rid of that. Uh, and, you know, one of the main complications of pres- dorsal preservation rhinoplasty that's cited by authors such as Saban and others is uh, hump recurrence. It's probably not recurrence as much as it is, just it's still there. It never really went away, uh, and the swelling sort of hit it for a while, then it shows up over time. I doubt; I don't think it's really springing back up. But who knows? But
1: that that's also quite common. I mean, I've seen quite a bit of that on our on our WhatsApp groups and things about the um, Joseph technique, where there's still a hump left. Behind. Oh yeah, what?
0: no. To be fair, you know, when I look at my results for Joseph pump production, and, and I tell patients, it's it's really rarely straight as an arrow. Uh, you know, it's it's usually there's a there might be a little irregularity. So. I guess I'm not talking about little regulars. I'm talking about really true, like a hump still being like a, a decent size hump still being there. I think that would that's what I would consider a complication. In fact, one of the patients I'll show you later, if we have time, is somebody who has a little bump there, but it's much improved, and you know I don't consider it a hump recurrence at all. Um, and and so these are some examples of what I would consider ideal profile types for dorsal preservation rhinoplasty. So they're they're high dorsums with gentle curves without a really deep radix. Uh, and without a, a large super tip break because the supertip also can drop a bit. And uh, so these folks are all good. Uh, and from a frontal view, you should look at those dorsal static lines. And, for example, a uh, patient on the left has a nice width, has nice dorsal static lines. Patient in the middle has a, a twisted nose, uh, which is a midpoint deflection between the bone and the cartilage. Versus the person on the right has a deviated nose, straight deviation, though. The bone and cartilage are in line, but just pointed in the wrong direction. Now, out of these, uh, I would say the one on the left and then the one on the right are potentially good candidates uh, for, uh, for preservation. Uh, but the, the patient in the middle would not be because you can't really – you don't want to preserve that. You want to actually fix that with an, an open technique on the dorsum. So that wouldn't be a great candidate. And this is the study that I was mentioning earlier. And, and, you know, we did this small study and it's actually been cited quite a bit, which is sort of gratifying, but it was really just to look at whether or not um, we could do uh, dorsal preservation methods sequentially in the same cadaver specimens and look at CT scans. And so we did, uh, we took some heads and we did uh, a push down and then a letdown operation in the same patients with CT scans. Uh, in between, I should say, specimens, not patients, uh, and looked at the airway. In addition, we compared it to some uh, matched uh, cadaver specimens where we did traditional uh, auto spreader flaps and uh, so on. So, in those uh, in those specimens, we saw no difference in the airway between the the letdown operation and the uh, auto spreaders, showing that there's really equivalence in terms of airway preservation but the push down actually was much tighter. Uh, and so we recommend against doing the push down operation if it's avoidable uh, in patients and actually just taking a little bit of that bone out so that there isn't uh, any impaction of the airway. Uh, and this is just showing kind of the results uh, uh, that we got uh, with that. So with the push down, when you have decreased internal valve area, the letdown down in Joseph, the areas were stable.
1: Very interesting.
0: So have okay. questions about indication and so on.
1: So no, it does. The twisted nose was the one that I wanted to know that we wouldn't be able to do that. And the straight deviation is interesting because if you're going to bring it down, you still have to straighten it out. Yes. So I'd like to know how you get that right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about this concept of
0: structural and preservation rhinoplasty uh, combined. And, um, you know, this idea, again, I I don't want to I don't want to get into hot, any hot water by trying to claim this is something that, that uh, I thought of. It's really not. It's not at all. This has been done worldwide by people like Goxel, Cousins, uh, Ferreira, as you mentioned, Miguel, uh, Carlos Neves. Milos is doing it now. Ashida in Brazil has been doing a variation of it and, and others. And so, you know, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience here and with uh, structural preservation rhinoplasty. And so I've got all these guys lined up over the next couple of months. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, uh, so for me, my definition is, you know, looking at the dorsal preservation and ailer preservation is one thing and combining it with structural tip tripod work that we've been doing for years and that I feel very comfortable with. So again, our, our tripod concept for novice surgeons or for, uh, patience is the idea that the tip of the nose is supported on a tripod. That includes the medial cura, uh, which is the part between uh, the nostrils and the columella there, uh, and then the sides, uh, the lateral cura. And if you think of it as a tripod, it's it's actually quite intuitive to think about the manipulations you can do on the tripod, such as advancing it forward, uh, rotating upwards, uh, and so on and so forth. The the modified subdorsal strip method that that I uh, use uh, is uh, a modification of the septal techniques that we talked about earlier. In some ways, it's sort of like a modified caudal. Uh, and what we do with this is we do a, a we leave a subdorsal strut uh, or strip uh, of about five to six millimeters rather than cut right under the dorsum. So it's a, it's a substantial strip, gives you some control on it. We put a flexion cut in it, uh, which is again an idea that's that's that. Uh, that Fausto and others have been talking about for for a while with their methods. Uh, And it allows it to flex into position. Our osteotomy at the top is – osteotomies are the same as we described earlier. And the whole segment flexes down. And you have to trim it a little bit, of course. You can trim it to the level you want. And then suture control uh, with with PDS sutures uh, is done to kind of hold it in position. And, again, um, this is something that I – came up with uh, after having watched some people do this for the last few years, and I started doing this about two years ago, and um, just to show that, uh, oh, by the way, you can also remove some cartilage as shown here for your septal extension grafts and so on, um, but this, this technique is, is a modification of a lot of different things that other folks are doing, as I'll show you in a minute.
1: Um, so, can I just interrupt you for a second there? So you, are you doing this as an endonasal or an open approach? Totally open. So I'm doing open structure rhinoplasty. But you then, you're going to be dissecting on the tip. You're going to stop at what Miguel calls the W area, just the start of the upper laterals and not touch that.
0: Yeah, I take it down about five millimeters. The W area is just a, is not a cartilage, this attachment, really. It's just a membranous area. So I just open that up.
1: Okay. But you won't actually, I mean, you just go um, cephalically, maybe four or five millimeters and stop there and then you bring it down.
0: Correct. Okay. Correct. Just to see, you, you you don't necessarily need to do that, but you can easily do that, and then it gives you you can actually reattach those uh, very easily if you need to. So the the cartilaginous and bony resections and the letdown are kind of showing you're comparing the the modified subdorsal strip with the Saban and the caudal method, uh, and um, this is how they they drop into position. Uh, and you know, again, I just want to point out that lots of people have variations. This is this is uh, uh, Carlos uh, published this. Uh, after our paper, but he was doing something similar and I was aware of it actually because we chatted about it um, when I was talking about the way I was doing things a couple of years ago. And there's a slight difference here because he's actually not keeping that entire caudal strut intact. And subsequent to this, he published a paper called the Tetris Method, which is also kind of similar to uh, to this uh, method that I'm talking about. So, you know, there's a few of us having this idea of keeping the subdorsal strip intact, putting a split in it and dropping it in position. But For me, the key is keeping this caudal strut intact, which is different uh, than what you just saw. Uh, And independent, you know, this is all, came up with this completely independently. uh, But you can see we're all kind of going towards the same thing. And what this does is it allows us to um, do our tongue and groove method or other suture control methods on the tip that I really like uh, with an intact caudal strut uh, or septal extension grafts or what have you. So this to me is, for my practice, the key part of this. uh, And... You can't do this with the, the caudal method, um, and the Saban method cuts all the way through the anterior angle as well. Um, and uh, this, having suture control on that little strip there is also something I really like. So hmm. this is one of the first cases um, that I did about two years ago. Uh, and just, you know, analyzing her, she has a nice tip. It's a little bit over-projected. She has some facial asymmetries. As you can tell the right side's a little shorter than the left. She has a little bit of uh, dorsal asymmetry and the left tip defining point is more mm-hmm. prominent, but those weren't issues for her. She really just wanted this to be, uh, you know, to be straight. Uh, and so, I did this modified subdorsal sorb- strip method, uh, and we dropped it in a position as shown here. And on the diagram, for those of you who can't see, is showing that cross section again, keeping that Roman arch intact uh, and dropping it in. And and uh, you know, that's again a, a key point. Um, this is showing you just that little w area separated very slightly. You see that? There's just about a four oh, millimeter. The whole w rest is. of the cartilage dorsum, is completely intact. Uh, and, and there's this initial cut uh, down and then back. And this is a, a little video showing that strip coming out. And you can take out a little more if you want as you go along. Um, this is, again, just showing that. And then, now you can flex it up mm-hmm. and now you can see. You can even actually put it back up a couple of millimeters if you think you cut too much, by the way. You can set it up, which is another... Part of the control of this that I like more than the Saban method, because if you cut too much there, it's pretty much you're done.
1: Yeah. So this is- uh, And then what do you use for the for the, for the bone? Are you using piezo? Yes. To have this leg down?
0: Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, I do a complete uh, piezo open dissection, uh, and um, I have a short video of that too. I can show if we have time. I didn't want to take too much time, so I didn't initially include it, but-
1: You've got all the time here. in the world. It's This is fantastic. You'd like to see it? Yeah, Carry on, Sam. This is really great. Okay,
0: great. So this is showing this PDS suture going in position. This is where I wanted the dorsum. Now you see, there's a big step to that that caudal strut. Mm. We're going to trim that. Uh, this is showing the side view. I like doing Ailer spanning mm. sutures and other things. You know, Tebbets and others have championed over the years to get really good control of that tip. Uh, and so I like having that uh, sticking up. Uh, and so this is what the this operation looked like on our country diagram afterwards, by the way. It was this this operation, her, is one of those ones, like that perfect golf shot. It, the whole operation took about 64 minutes. Uh, wow. Uh, which, which, which is which is what, you know, it happens once in a while. <laughs> I wasn't rushing yeah, yeah. at all, but you didn't really need to do much tip work, you know, or any. So
1: so that's uh, very interesting because well, yeah. I want you to know, time-wise compared to um, a Joseph open approach to taking off the roof, compared to doing your preservation. Have you found a difference?
0: I think it's a little bit slower doing the open piezo takedown just because there's a bit more dissection and setting up the piezo and using it versus just taking osteotomes and going, going to town with osteotomes, <laughs> frankly. Okay. But uh, but it's not, it's not a big difference. I think you know for me, most of my work ends up being around the tip anyway, spending more time there. Mm-hmm. Um, but she didn't really need anything. I just put a nailer spanning suture, tongue and groove to support her tip where I wanted, it and we were done. This is the on-table result, and you know I don't, I'm not a big believer in on-table results uh, in terms of showing them. Uh, I, I don't take a lot of these photographs um, in the operating room. Uh, I did that day just because it was one of the one of the earlier cases, and I thought it'd be interesting to see. And you'll see that it holds up. Here she is at one year, um, and by the way, she is slightly deprojected, as you'll see on the base view. Uh, you don't appreciate it as mm-hmm. much there. Uh, and here's her three quarters view, uh, frontal view. You can see she's got some improved symmetry of that of that dorsum. The dorsum was completely intact. Uh, base view. You can see here there's a bit of deep projection uh, on her. And so uh, this really, you know, I like these views. They really show uh, the Correct. the contour for along those dorsal mm-hmm. aesthetic lines to the tip very nicely. Um, and you can see that you know we we haven't touched that dorsum, but just settling it down to position that transition in the Lower mid vault to the tip looks kind of nice. I think the way it kind of just blends in. Right.
1: That's fantastic for your first rodeo, there. Eh? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well not, not the very first one, but one of my early
1: cases. And so, Sam, just tell me. I want to ask you quickly a question here. Yeah. Your photographs that you post and you use at talks, um, in terms of one or three or five year results, I, I think they're some of the most like the best that I see. Because in terms of, do you have somebody who puts them together for you? Because they are absolutely. Identical, and and really, I mean, I, I'm I'm impressed, and I want to know how you do that because I use Vectors H1, I think it is, um, and it gives a result, but what I don't know how you get this done. Please tell me about it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, earlier on in my career, I was sort of the photography guy, I did all these instructional courses on photography and and uh, papers in photography for our journals, and so I kind of it sort of as a hobby of mine as well. Um, and so I think it's just standard doing having standardized lighting uh and mm-hmm. proper white balance on your camera uh and uh you know standardized positioning for the patients is really key and honestly I end up taking a lot of these pictures myself uh, my fellow take pictures cool. my one of my nurses takes pictures and if I don't like them I just make the patient get back in the chair and I take them again <laughs> because I want them to be as, you know, when I look at these two pictures, I see that her head is slightly tilted on the pre. So that sort of bugs me a little bit, to be honest with you. But, but, uh, but you know, I, I am a stickler for that. So I appreciate you noticing that. Thank you.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Um, and you can see this is an open approach. People always ask about these incisions and things, you know, if you close it properly and take good care of it in surgery, they're really hard to see. You can't see that incision at Mm -hmm. all. um, And so we're going to talk about patient reported outcome measures next. And one thing that I've been saying in the past couple of years is that I think we should all show data about the patient's breathing and and aesthetic uh, satisfaction after every single case that we show photos for is just as important. And so I'm starting to do that now for every case that I have the data for, because this problem that I'm showing you, we came up with four years ago. We don't have before that. Um, so this is the, this is this prom, which the first four questions shown in light blue are, uh, highly validated for breathing, which is actually even more validated than the nose questionnaire, which everyone likes to use, which is now quite old. Uh, And then the bottom, uh, six questions are aesthetic, including a psychosocial question number five, which is a very important one. Uh, And so you can see before surgery, she was concerned mostly number seven and eight, uh, scored five, which is worse for straightness in the shape of the nose from the side. She had a little bit of congestion and so on. And um, at 12 months, she goes to all zeros. Uh, And so, um, you know, this is, again, more evidence that this this is a patient whose breathing has been preserved and is happy aesthetically. So uh, I think that's an important thing to show. And I'm trying to get everyone to start using this prom. It's been adopted worldwide by multiple, uh, multiple surgeons in multiple languages. And we'll talk about that in the next talk.
1: You know, I use it for all of my patients.
0: Fantastic. And, and I, I hope, uh, I'm not going to try to lead you on here, but do you find it useful just to, as a, as a doctor let alone not talking about research, but just before you walk in the room, you can look at that and you know what, what some of the patient's concerns are before you walk in the room.
1: No, it's, it's essential. It's like Miguel, said to me Cameron if you don't take photographs you didn't do rhinoplasty yeah if you don't do a schnaz questionnaire beforehand and afterwards I don't think you should be doing rhinoplasty so I've actually gotten like I have an athletics background I used to be an Olympic canoeist and uh, I'm very keen on the whole functional side of rhinoplasty as well so I've been doing quite a bit of research with uh, Prof Martin Schwellness Mm -hmm. at our big sports institute in South Africa and also working with the International Olympic Committee, and I've been trying to develop a sports-specific type of a schnos. Ah. So I've been comparing them to each other and trying to work out something that can help uh, sports physicians. It's more a screening questionnaire than a prom for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit more difficult than I realized. Yeah. I mean, what I, you guys I, have done is…
0: I, uh, there's a whole science behind it. and That's going to be a little bit… I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the next, uh, next okay. little thing. So we'll, we'll talk about that. It's, I learned a lot developing that prom quite a bit. So, I think this is the video you, you requested. So, this is, of course, a sped up shortened version showing the modified subgrossal strip. So, this is the open piezo approach you're asking about. So, we've got full dissection of the entire bony vault. And, you know, it's hard to get a camera in there, but this is showing the osteotomy and ostectomy uh, there. And this, uh, you're going to see a little piece of bone coming out here in a second. It's important to do the medial cut and then the lateral cut on that ostectomy, uh, Cameron, because otherwise it's it's mobile. There you go. So, you can see a piece of bone coming mm-hmm. out there's a little separation we do uh, at that point between the upper lateral and the bone to allow it to flex open. I, I'm not so sure. Is that what Miguel talks about the
1: ballerina move?
0: Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, honestly that, that was, that's been done for a long time. You see the slight cut there, of the W area I just did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mm-hmm. going to pause it so we can talk about that. The ballerina, again, this is a little bit of wild West stuff going on. Everyone's trying to claim everything. And, and, you know, people have been doing that little maneuver for a while. Uh, and then, um, my friends, Milos and Guxel jokingly called it the ballerina maneuver and yeah. But again, this stuff has been going on for a while. I think that Fausto uh, has been doing it and, and Carlos was doing that for a long time. But uh, yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. And I think, you know, I haven't done a cadaver study on that to see how important that really is in terms of flexion. I think that um, uh, it's uh, another important concern is whether it affects stability of the lateral nasal wall. and. We actually just published a paper that came out in facial plastic surgery aesthetic medicine this week showing that it doesn't seem to affect things. So that's good. But anyway, that's the story behind that. And so here we've done a little, um, just a little cut to allow us to have a little bit better visualization of the septum. Uh, And so uh, I'm going to mark here so you can see where we're going to do our cut. You can see there's a little cut there, vertical cut, then a Mm -hmm. uh, a cut going up along the uh, dorsum. Now that cartilage often extends beyond the uh, rhinion. So, uh, the bony resection is minimal. In fact, in this one, I just cut a little bit the ethmoid bone. I didn't actually remove any. And I think that's really important that you don't overdo it. Um, the, uh, in this case, I didn't use an osteotomy to do the cut, at the the transverse cut at the top. I just used the PSO to go across the top, but you can also use an osteotomy. This is a 4-O PDS suture uh, going through mucosa over the rhinion and then back down through the rhinion into the nose and then back across mucosa. And the reason I do it that way is because initially I was doing it just through the septum, but it can cheese wire through the cartilage and and you just don't want to do that. So the mucosa gives a little extra strength. It's a PDS suture that's way up high and the patient doesn't even know it's there. So it just kind of dissolves and goes away. Let's see here. Go back. Sorry about that. It just sort of stopped there. Did I stop sharing? Can you see
1: me still? No, I can still see you. you, oh, there you got we okay, yeah. I think it's the start of the video.
0: Uh, what the issue is, we might have to edit this part, Cameron, because uh, I can't press the advance on the video without hitting, okay, the, no problem. hitting something there, so
1: we'll have to We're on the, go back here. It's fine. The first edit was at 28 minutes, and this one's at 44 minutes.
0: Okay, and so I'm just going to have to let it go back through to that point. It's just another
1: minute or so after that to show the other suture. That's fine. I'm like, okay. It's interesting. I wish I could come and visit you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yo. <laughs> yeah. But now, now they've shut us down. We're not allowed into the States.
0: Yeah, we we for years you know, had so many different visitors from uh, various places spend time with us. In fact, some would spend a year or so with us. Um, but uh, right now, of course, none. We're trying to get someone up from Brazil right now, and uh, she's working on working on getting okay from Stanford, and she'll have to quarantine for a couple of weeks. But she's going to spend a year uh, doing some
1: research That's and great day. observation. But I, you know, I'm I'm a few months away from opening my own uh, facility here Yeah. The theaters yeah. yeah. I want to hear about yeah. that. It's very exciting. So I I want to set up like lots of round and try and get you guys here rather than me necessarily going there.
0: Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're coming okay. up on that stitch again. So the first stitch is that uh, the stitch at the rhinion. And to me, that one's the optional stitch. The one at the the tip is more important. But this is that stitch going mm-hmm. in again, going transmucosal and up through the rhinion just below the bony junction, and then back through the other side. I like to use a larger suture for this just because it's easier to visualize it. You know, passing it through the mucosa into the nose, um, mm-hmm. and so you just. Kind of take a look at where it is inside there, and then get it. Sometimes it's a little harder than that to find it, and then go across and then suture it down. So you set, you just kind of stabilize that area once you get it where you want it. Uh, and then uh, what we're going to do now is um, do the the one below. And so this goes through that little segment uh, of the modified subdorsal strip, uh, and then it comes through the caudal segment. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, we've got that set now. Now this is another patient that really didn't need a tip work. Um, now I'm just setting the tip that I can like do this tongue and groove method, and we've written some papers about how to optimize that. I use permanent mm-hmm. suture for this, uh, and um, you can see that suture going through the septum. Now it's important to have it go through the medial cura symmetrically so that the amount showing is the same, and you can, you know, do this, and sometimes it might take one or two iterations to get the tip projection or rotation just where you want it. Here I'm doing a medial control suture, this is not going through the septum, but just trying to get that tip just the way I want it without making it uh, too tight. You can see there's extra septum up there, so I'm trimming that down, this is what we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now we've got that super tip just the way we want it, and we do this additional ailer spanning suture uh, just to stabilize it again uh, even further, Uh, and so our tip is really well stabilized uh, across there and in just the position we want.
1: So now say for example you're taking or four millimeters of the caudal septum. Mm-hmm. How much bone do you remove to know that you, you, you don't want to take out too much bone, you don't want to take too little bone because you need to get the, everything dropped the, down. In terms of the letdown? Yes. Um so the letdown is pretty pretty
0: consistently uh three millimeters. Uh two to three millimeters is really all you need to do. Um because mm-hmm. uh with with some exceptions, of course. I mean, if you're if you're doing an asymmetric dorsum, as I'll show you in just a minute, um, then you're going to want to then you're going to want to do it differently on each side. Um, if you have a very high hump and you need to take more, I suppose you could take more, but those I, I would probably just be really careful with using this method on. Um, and you know, three millimeters seems to be fine because, again, the the bone up top. Uh, it sort of rotates. It doesn't drop in as much. So that's going to have contact. And down below, the most important thing is to make sure you're not impacting into the nasal airway. So even if you either mm-hmm. have a gap or it overlaps just a tiny bit, that's okay. You just want a lot of overlap down into the nose. Yep. Uh, so okay. this is uh, uh, another patient um, from a couple of years ago who came in and this is showing again using more structural techniques in the tip than the other ones I've showed you. Uh, and so she's got a gentle high curve, a uh, very narrow tip, which you know we kept, uh, and she wants her alar flare reduced. And so um, what we did for her was uh, the um, letdown operation. The, the, the bony cuts aren't shown in the country there, sorry. But in the, the tip, we used uh, a lateral curl overlay. She's somebody who had a small step at the radix when I was done. I put a tiny little cartilage graft there, which was fine, uh, and we did alar base reductions. And so here she is, 14 months. Okay, so she has a small... Uh, a small irregularity. Uh, I, I, that's that's just the residual. Uh, and again, this is showing what we talked about earlier. But she's very happy, as you'll see, and I, I, she actually looks fantastic. And this is something that, unless you analyze photographs, you wouldn't really notice uh, in real life. Mm. You can see the tip stability generated with keeping our tripod techniques intact that we like to use. Yeah. Um, uh, her ailer base incisions reduced her flare. You can see that on the three quarters view really nicely. Uh, frontal view, preservation of the dorsal aesthetic lines, tip, ailer bases are less flared. Uh, base view, very slight asymmetry, but otherwise she's doing well. Uh, and, you know, these are her schnauz scores, pre-op, and here she is post-op. You know, anything below a two is inconsequential, essentially. So she's she's doing great uh, aesthetically and functionally. Uh, and so we're really happy with, with how she's doing. Uh, but the, the key thing there is I think that Tip stability, lateral curl overlay—these types of things we like to do with open structure rhinoplasty. And we can still do them, so we don't have to sort of give that all up. Uh, and I can still do my open structure rhinoplasty. Um, this is a patient that I showed earlier with a straight deviation to the left. These deviated noses are very mm-hmm. difficult, and I always, always explain to patients we can't make you 100% straight. Uh, we can, you know, make you straighter usually, uh, and we can do other things. But you know. Um, I make sure I don't simulate patients totally straight when I have my consultation with them because we're just not going to get that. It's very powerful visually to show that to somebody. Uh, And so we're going to do this uh, modified subgrossal strip on this patient um, and an asymmetric letdown. And so in this case, again, this is not an original idea. I've seen many people talk about this, so I don't know who I should give credit to as an original originator of this. Uh, But uh, uh, there's a paper published by a completely different group from Turkey about this in, uh, facial plastic surgery, aesthetic medicine earlier in 2020 as well. This case is from before that, but what we're doing here in cross section is we're taking that Roman arch, it's like the leading tower of Pisa, right? It's where we've got a lot of Italian references here is off to the side. We want to get it straight. One side of that one wall is too long. So we're going to resect that wall only and drop it into position, um, as shown there diagrammatically. Uh, and, um, so this is a video and so in these cases, we actually measure the length and uh, the key is to get, a, get the measurements right. Uh, but we kind of put the nasofacial groove and then we decide what the difference is. So we measure with the ruler and I can see I need about a three millimeter, four millimeter resection on the, on the right side and none on the left. So here we are doing our uh, piezo approach. Uh, we don't do any ostectomy on the left, but on the right, which is on the left hand side of the screen, we're gonna do an ostectomy and I think I'm going to slow-mo here to show the bone coming out in just a minute. Um, and so again, you should do the, here's the bone coming out. So there's the bone. You can see that pretty decent resection. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and then, uh, we go ahead and complete the rest of the osteotomies. Uh, and then the modified subgrossal strip, which I kind of showed you earlier, I think we can probably skip that cause it's a similar idea to what, to what we just showed. And so, um, with the structural preservation, in this case, we're, we use an SEG to try to get the tip a bit straighter. Uh, and we did the um, modified subdorsal strip and asymmetric letdown to shift everything to the right. And so, um, again, this is the modified subdorsal strip being put down in position. And we have that caudal strut we can suture an SEG to. Um, and this is that same. So let's skip that. And this is – here. here she is at 15 months – post operatively, so uh, we we're able to get the tip up, we we're able to reduce the dorsum um, three quarters view shows a nice uh nice uh, angles, still some asymmetry in the front view, but improved overall uh and so you know this wow. is this is you know it's 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 about the same result you'd get i think you wouldn't get any better than that with any other method that I know of sometimes you know this patient looked much straighter at six months and they
1: get a little drift. I think they're stable here uh, at fifteen yeah. months. But Sam, I want to just stop you for a second here. Yeah. And these, the, these asymmetric, uh, straight asymmetric, often the entire face, is there's even more difference between the left and the rights. Yeah. And I think it's a, because it's difficult sometimes to get this right. Somebody comes to you, they say, my face, my, my nose is very skewed. But then you can morph them and show them if you stitch the right and the left together how? dramatically different the two sides of their face are. This is something
0: that's been studied extensively by many people. We're actually in the process of doing a a large study looking at over 300 patients, analyzing all their faces with key uh, external landmarks to look for what I call occult mid-face asymmetry or OMA. Uh, And this paper hopefully Mm -hmm. will get done in the next year or so. Uh, But um, there there was some work done uh, on this uh, out of Tehran by some plastic surgeons in Tehran about 10 or 11 years ago. looking at tendencies for the nose to de- deviate towards the smaller side of the face. And I'm not so sure we're going to find the same thing. So I think we're going to add to that literature, but yeah, it's a big issue. You know, where do you line the nose up? The, you think about it, hmm. the, the, I tell patients you have the upper third of the face, the mid third and the lower third. Uh, and um, you know, they don't always line up and the nose has to connect the upper to the middle <laughs> and to the lower. So if your lower third is to the right, your nose is going to have to go that way. Otherwise, it would look strange to, to make it straight. Never mind mm, the fact mm. that if you move the external nose to be straight on the face, but the piriform aperture is over here, uh, you're going to have nasal obstruction. Yep. So it's much more complicated, I think, than, than many surgeons even realize when they're starting out. Um, but this is this patient's uh, preoperative schnauz scores and then a postoperative uh, doing, doing very well. Brilliant. I think this is probably the last case I want to show, um, then we'll, we'll have a little chat. Um, this is a patient who um, in some ways is not the greatest candidate uh, because she does have a kind of low radix, because exp- she does have a gentle hump. Uh, she wants, to, her main concerns around a droopy tip uh, and she wants that to be improved as well as tip form. You can see she has some facial asymmetry, the left uh, ALA is a little bit lower than the right. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, you can see the instability, of the tip with smiling there as well. And so in this case, I kind of um, did a few things. We did we did do a push down this time because I wanted minimal impaction and, I, and I, I knew I wasn't gonna impact so much that I was gonna impact the airway. Uh, tongue and groove, um, we used mini lateral curl struck rafts which we'll talk about in a second, which is uh, a technique uh, modification, of course, of the famous Gunter lateral curl struck rafts to so just stabilize the tip uh, and preserve tip cartilages so we're preserving ailer cartilage. Uh, an ALR spanning suture and a little bit of a cap graft and the other types of things we can do with open approach to improve uh, tip contour. And this is this mini lateral pro stroke graft, which is about a one centimeter graft placed right underneath that super tip area to stabilize it, straighten it. So you don't remove any cartilage, you don't tension it, but you can straighten it with this. Uh, So you can't always do tensioning uh, in patients. Uh, And so this is a nice way uh, to do that without impacting the area with a large graft. Uh, and also mm-hmm. stabilizes it for your, when you do tip sutures, uh, it stabilizes that area when it's right under the dome so that you don't get collapse or pinching or bossing. And so here she is uh, at 16 months uh, after dorsal preservation and structural uh, uh, techniques. Um, you can see the stability of the tip. Um, this is a three-quarters view showing a really nice uh, kind of angle there an oblique view. Frontal view, she still has a slight asymmetry of the mid-dorsum as she had pre uh, but overall, her tip, you can see her tip form is is really, really nice. You can see it on the base view, especially, without having tension and really extend the nose. Uh, so not mm-hmm. everyone wants that. Uh, and this, again, shows the tip uh, form change from that bird's eye view with a nice contour and stability without bossé or anything else. Uh, and her preoperative schnoz scores uh, and postoperative schnoz scores. Um, uh, so, uh, these are, you know, she's a very, very happy person. So, you know, combining structural, uh, preservation and preservation of the osteocartilage and well with tip tripod techniques is kind of what I like to do. Um, and, uh, it means being able to do all the different things, tongue and groove mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, hinge flaps, mini lateral curl grafts, lateral curl overlay, SEGs, whatever you like to do along with your, uh, your dorsal preservation. Uh, and so Mm -hmm. to me, it's adding another tool to the toolbox. Um, I think if you only do rhinoplasty one way, it's sort of like you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail uh, and it may Mm not be the optimum way for every patient. And so having this, in addition to all the other things that I've learned over the years is something I'm really grateful for and to the people who've taught me in the past few years. So really thankful about that. And, um, uh, this is just a shout out to my like Cambodia team, we're missing them, and we hope to go again uh, next year. And uh, I want to thank you, uh, Cameron, for your time. I mean, having me here on, on your time this evening for you. And uh, no, let's, chat, let's chat about I, preservation a little bit, and uh, uh, we can move on to whatever else you'd like to talk about.
1: No, I think that, that, that talk now should be um, mandatory to all the residents to learn. And also the guys who've been in the game for a long time um that's brilliant i'm i'm excited so i've got one more question for you what percentage of your surgeries do you use these techniques
0: so i think you know the, that's a good question in the first in the first 6 to 8 months i was very excited and, and i was doing it in 80 or 90% of my dorsal heart reductions which was uh probably not correct i mean i think that uh, they all did fine but i think that i could have more easily less stress done some of those cases uh, because I, I, you know, pick difficult cases for dorsal preservation, I'm trying to do it now. It ends up being about 40 or 50 percent of the, the dorsums that I take down. It seems to me that I'm getting I, in my practice. I get a lot of patients with really severe complex septal deviations, uh, and so I do a lot of extracorporeal septoplasty. And I, I've already yeah. published that we can do that really well with Joseph technique. And actually, yeah. we did publish a paper with three cases where we did it with uh, with this. But if you think about it. If you take out the septum and you then you do dorsal preservation this whole thing is just floating around right and it's a, it's a little bit stressful and the, the other aspect of it is you don't have any tension you can place on that to, to flatten it in that case uh you don't, yes. you're not suturing it yes. down to anything so exactly the only cases you can really do it on uh, where you have a complex septal deviation that you need to where you need to replace the anterior septum with anterior septal reconstruction are cases where it's a very gentle curve where you're actually just lowering the whole thing down and not flexing it at all. Hmm. Uh, and then think of those cases, yeah. you can do it. But honestly, I'm not sure what the big advantage is in those. You can do a really nice job with Joseph. And the other thing I want to say is, yeah. you know, you see some people talk talk about the destruction of the dorsum and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I don't like using those terms because, um, you know, the fact is you can do really nice work with the Joseph pump Production, and if you're really careful with how you recreate the dorsal static lines you can get wonderful long lasting results and you know our paper showed also that the airway is just as well preserved so I just want to point out that um, I don't really fall into one category or the other I think they're both really great and uh, if they're done well they both work really well for your patients and doing things well is the most important thing.
1: So that was great so let's talk about evidence-based medicine and rhinoplasty. Yes. <laughs> it's another big, big topic, big topic. I think it'd be great. I, I
0: think that, uh, you know, one of my missions as an academic facial plastic surgeon, I used to joke about with uh, other people uh, back in 2002, three, four, when I first started was I wanted to make the world safe for aca- academic facial plastic surgeons. In other words, we were kind of thought of as uh, the black sheep of the otolaryngology family, because we didn't really do good science. And, you know, everything was about showing pretty pictures and not really measuring your results. So I think that I'm really grateful that in the past 20 years, uh, a lot of surgeons have picked up on this idea, uh, both in the private world and, and in the uh, and in the academic world. And uh, I think that you know, we're moving along. So let me um, share a screen and we'll talk a little bit, huh?
1: That'd be great. Okay. I'm reminded um, when I went to visit Rod Rorick a couple of years ago, I was so taken by the fact that he's in private and working so hard and the editor the PRS and all this kind of stuff. And the one day I asked him, I said to him, prof, you know, where do you find time for the academics? So he puts the scalpel down and he looks at me He says, Cameron, academia is a state of mind. (laughs) And it was just like so great for me because all of our webinars that we've been running and this podcast and stuff, I'm not in an academic setup. I'm in private practice. And you realize that you you need to be doing just as much academia and private practice as you are at a university.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's so true, and it is it is amazing what what uh, Rod's been uh, been able to do um, with everything that he's done, and uh, in a lot of ways he sets the sets a standard for many of us to to achieve clinically and academically. So yeah, I really appreciate that, and um, you know, uh, kudos to Miguel as you know for starting this uh, evidence-based uh, telegram group that I'm, I'm also one of the board members on and really appreciate that. And I think that there's a lot of interest out there from surgeons to understand, you know, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, you know, and, and understand really the best ways to go forward, especially right now with all of the stuff you hear about preservation or other things like that and all the Instagram posts and everything. It's so hard to, um, to, to separate reality uh, from, you know what what you see out there, and, and what I want to talk about here is the idea of precision medicine in rhinoplasty, which is uh, separating reality from expectations. Uh, and precision medicine um, is uh, a really hot word right now, at least in the U.S. Uh, hospital world. Um, and it's it's basically a medical model, model that proposes that the customization of healthcare and medical decisions treatments, practices or products should be tailored to a subgroup of patients instead of a one drug fits all model uh, or simply tailoring the the treatment to the individual characteristics of the patient. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that's what I've been doing my whole career. And that is true to a certain extent, but I think we can do it. We can do it better. But Mm. when you think about what we're talking about, we're talking about understanding a disease process, measuring an outcome, and then individualizing and fine-tuning our medical treatment to treat that specific uh, problem in, in any given patient more appropriately. Uh, and that it requires us to diagnose better what's going on and to measure our outcomes better. Uh, and, you know, coming up through the system in the 90s, you know, how did we do that? We showed a picture of a nose before and after, and we said, well, that looks good. You know, I, I, I think that it's more, it's more than that. Um and so what does precision medicine mean for rhinoplasty for example if i if i showed you this you, you know if i showed this to a room of rhinoplasty surgeons with all the other photographs i think probably 25% would clap 25% would uh um say meh and 50% would probably be looking at their phones and not even paying attention to the screen anyway so you know <laughs> how do we how do we really measure what's going on with these patients you know and it's it's um more than just aesthetics as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's about function as well in everybody. So it doesn't matter what I show you on the screen if I don't also show you that this patient can actually breathe well or better if they had a problem before we did the operation. Um, and so, as you know, there's three primary modalities for measurement of nasal obstruction. Uh, physical measures, quantitative measurements, uh, rhinomanometry, and, and so on, uh, PNIF, PNIF. Uh, you know, now we have computational flow uh, imagery, which really can't be done on a patient-to-patient basis. We have physician-derived measures. Just what do you see when you examine the patient? Is there a grading or severity system for it? Uh, and finally, patient-reported uh, outcome measures of PROMs. And I guess the question I'd, I'd ask you is, and, and anyone who's reading or, or, or sorry, watching or listening to this, how well do subjective descriptions of nasal obstruction um, correlate with objective measures of geometry and airflow. What do you think the answer to that is?
1: I don't think that correlate very well. Yeah,
0: that's your experience, uh, right? Uh, no, that's yeah. just that's what we see in the clinic every day, um, and and studies have shown that uh, these generally correlate quite poorly, uh, and we're really not understanding exactly why yet. Um, so, this is a image from a what I think is a classic study. Uh, from uh, Lamb and Weaver from 2006, and I was fortunate to be at the University of Washington on faculty when when I saw them, you know, publish this study. What we have here on the screen uh, is a graph. On the left side, we have the y-axis showing the nasal obstruction uh, symptom evaluation and nose scale, which is a scale for how bad you can, how bad the obstruction is. Worse is higher, uh, a higher score. And on the bottom, we have nasal peak inspiratory flow uh, or PNIF. Uh, and so higher flow is better towards the right. So you'd expect uh, perhaps that as scores go down, peak flow would go up. Uh, something like this, right? Don't you think that's that's kind of that would make sense if there was actually a good correlation?
1: Absolutely. So yeah. That, what was the actual result?
0: Yeah, that's what you'd think, but this is this is actually not the real data. This is something that I generated for this talk. This is actually the real data. Uh, and you can see here that there's actually no correlation. What we're showing here, for those of you who can't see, is an absolute dispersed scatter plot uh, showing there's no correlation between flow of air through the nose and symptoms of nasal obstruction. And the, the authors did another, looked at this another way as well. So, you know, why is this? Um, why do these correlate so poorly? Uh, the answer is that we do not yet understand clearly the mechanisms for sensation of normal nasal airflow. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the things which I'm not showing here uh, is that there's, there, there's a lot of research now in terms of the vestibular mucosa and what sort of nasal sensory receptors exist in there. Uh, and it turns out that there are temperature sensors just posterior to the nasal vestibule in the area that you might call the internal valve that are very sensitive to temperature uh, changes and menthol. So menthol actually makes you feel like you can breathe better. So there's this whole idea out there that this temperature flux in that area is very important, and uh, computational flow dynamics is an important way of studying that. Um, This is an example of a patient with complete obstruction of the right side when you look in the nostril by the septum, which is 90 degrees to where it should be in an open left side, but can't breathe through the left side, swears up and down that the right side is wide open. So this is just an example from the clinic. What you can see. So, because of that, I generally don't personally uh, look at quantitative measurements. Physician derived measures, grades, and severity, I think are important. You know, when you think about the nomenclature for, um, uh, for example, external valve collapse, uh, it was any sort of collapse of the nostril, and that was what we were taught on our board exams, and the answer was batten grafts. Uh, and I, I found them not very useful. And early on in my career, I began thinking about things a little bit differently. Uh, and um, I began to think of things in terms of lateral wall collapse or lateral wall insufficiency and started talking about this in the early 2000s. Um, and finally, at the request of people, I said, why don't you publish this idea? And I, I did publish this idea of lateral wall insufficiency as a term that we should use uh, back in uh, 2008, finally. Uh, and really, I divide the nose up into two zones when I think about this, because They're sort of, you treat these differently, uh, and you think about them differently, and they're different sort of etiologies. Zone one collapse is much more common, uh, and it seems to happen with senescence, uh, as we lose bone and ligamentous stability around the piriform aperture. And my preferred way of treating it now is lateral pearl strut grafts. You can use bone-anchored sutures, or Latera, or other things like that. And rim grafts are used in zone two collapse, which is more classic external valve collapse. Uh, And they really stabilize it very nicely. Uh, And you can um, see those patients are often uh, have cephalically oriented cartilages or they have iatrogenic cause of of zone 2 collapse. And so this is an example of how I think for me, more precisely thinking about what's happening in the nose uh, is is important and and sort of changes the way I treat things. This is an endoscopic view of what we call zone 1 collapse. Uh, you have probably seen many times as well mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: okay do you ever use uh, turn under and turn over flaps of the lateral curve for this type of problem yeah,
0: uh, yes actually um you know I, I didn't i didn't get to talk about this in the in the last uh, session we we were just talking about preservation the preservation of lateral curve is something that um, that uh, has been around for a while uh, and Actually, I was very fortunate to be on the first uh, one of the first papers uh, on that. My, Craig Murakami, my uh, my mentor, had come up with this idea, and we wrote this paper about it. We thought we were the first to show the turn under flap. If you look it up in 2009 in in uh, in what was called Archives of Facial Plastic Surgery, but it turned out about six months earlier, uh, someone from Turkey had published the same idea. And so we've been doing that now. I I in terms of stability for lateral wall insufficiency. I'm not so certain that it is, it is, uh, it is it's useful as placing a lateral curl strut graft or something else that's more stable. I think you have to be careful with that because if someone has lateral wall insufficiency, it means their cartilage is weak already. Uh, and so if you're turning it under, you're not really adding much uh, in, terms of, uh, you, you know, in terms of that. So I think that probably wouldn't be my first choice for that uh, reason. Um, So we have a grading system also for lateral wall sufficiency, and we showed uh, in multiple papers that you can stiffen the lateral nasal wall uh, with uh, various techniques um, uh, and get the grade to go down and their obstructive symptoms to improve. So when I think about anatomic nasal obstruction, um, I, I don't think about things the way I think a lot of people do. I think about whether it's dynamic or static and whether it's medial or lateral. So static medial deviation is traditional septal deviation or valve narrowing. Static lateral uh, uh, obstruction is due to medialized nasal bone from fracture or surgery or inferior turbinate hypertrophy. Lateral dynamic uh, obstruction is lateral wall insufficiency. And so I divide it into zones and, and I decide whether it's responsive to a modified caudal maneuver. And just a moment about this for, for the surgeons that are out there. I think that the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes people make with this is that they, they lateralize the nasal wall and they say to this patient, ah, it's going to do well with the lateral graft after what have you. But I don't think that's really accurate. I think you're, you're actually going to end up with a lot of patients who don't improve if you do that because you don't actually lateralize the nasal wall very well uh, with any of these surgeries. You can stabilize it. Uh, so if you place a Q-tip in there and you actually just stabilize the wall when they breathe and they feel relief then they have true dynamic instability that's causing their inability to, to breathe. Uh, and, and I think that's that's the best way. And dynamic medial is very rare. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen a floppy septum. I've seen maybe one or two in my career, so I don't think that's an important cause. But that's how I think about uh, nasal obstruction. And that gets us to how finally the most important thing I think is patient derived measures, uh, PROMs. And um, I think this is such a key part of my practice and is and being, you know, recommended uh, nationwide in the United States, and we're lucky that our PROM is the one that they're recommending. Um, the nose questionnaire you're familiar with, uh, this, is, this was really a, a, like a landmark paper when this came out in 2004, it was really the first uh, n- sort of nasal, uh, functional questionnaire, uh, and it's, in, it's been widely translated, uh, and it's very disease specific. It was done for septoplasty and terminate reduction patients. Uh, and uh, but you know as you know that's only half of the equation so it's really inadequate I used for many years that questionnaire and the launch of my academic career was in many ways because of it because I published a lot of papers on outcomes with it uh, but I found that it was inadequate because it wasn't measuring uh, aesthetics um, and the question becomes how do we measure aesthetic results and as you know social perception and surgeon judgment are very important but I would submit to you that the patient's opinion is, is the most important. And for that reason, I think proms are the most important way to go. And just a couple of points about some proms that are out there and that have been developed in the past 12, 15 years. Uh, the face cue, uh is uh, well validated by uh, by Andrea Pusic, uh, General Facial Aesthetic Questionnaire, and there's a sub uh, rhinoplasty subsection that you can use the face QR, But the validation isn't that strong on it. If you look at what we consider strong validation, the questions are not... Completely relevant. There's no functional component, and it's kind of long and onerous for use by doctors and patients. The rhino questionnaire is something that I developed, and this is the this is the, the story that you know I like to tell to my residents and fellows about failure. You know, um, I wanted to develop a short questionnaire that would cover function and aesthetics, and so we we went through the same validation process that was used for the row, the Rhinoplasty Outcomes Evaluation from two thousand. Uh, and we, um, sent this out for review and it was thoroughly rejected. And the reason is because the validation that we used was frankly outdated and it wasn't very strong. And, you know, I, I spoke to people who knew about it cause I was very disappointed and upset whenever you have your, your ego hurt, when someone tells you what you did wasn't up to stuff. Uh, and they said, look, Sam, if you're going to do something like this, that you want everyone to use, it needs to be built on a really solid scientific foundation because you're gonna base your research on it for the next decade and other people are gonna be using it. You want what you do to really be accurate psychometrically. And this whole idea of the level of um, psychometric validation that you need to really have a useful PROM became really ingrained in me. Uh, And um, so I went back to the drawing board. Other people have published papers uh, such as this one, which is the Utrecht questionnaire, which is fine, but if you look again at the validation on this, um, and it, a lot of it depends on which reviewers you get. The validation on this does, again, it's, it's the same things I was criticized for with, with the, with the rhino scale. And not only that, it doesn't really have any nasal specific questions. It's really more about, uh, how you feel about your nose, uh, not about structure, uh, particular structure things. And there's no function. So it's really not very useful in terms of a prompt, uh, for rhinoplasty. Um, And so a PROM for rhinoplasty should be validated both functionally and aesthetically should be very strongly validated uh, for the reasons I just talked about and easy to use. Otherwise, no one's going to do it. And so when you think about developing a PROM, there has to be a framework where you talk to patients and experts extensively about what the most important issues are. Then you create questions based on that uh, framework. Um, And then you do item reduction based on psychometric evaluation of how those questions field test with hundreds and hundreds of patients, uh, and you reduce the questionnaire down to size. And we have to have someone who knows their psychometrics. So this is the framework we used to develop the shots, uh, which we're leading up to. And, you know, the most important uh, domains to the patients, it turned out, and physician experts we talked to were social perception of the nose, which is what the Utrecht questionnaire talks about, nasal obstruction, which is what the nose questionnaire talks about, cosmesis overall, and specific cosmesis of specific areas of the nose. No questionnaire covers all of these, um, and so we had the um, we had the benefit of having two very famous people help us with this. Mikhail Saltichev is a world famous psychometrician, physician who develops uh, outcome measures, uh, and he's in he's in Finland. Um, just an amazing guy, and, and just really really uh, instrumental in this and our, our subsequent papers on this. John Ioannidis is a very famous. Uh, outcomes researcher at Stanford uh, who helped us with this as well. And Sammy Mubai is the fellow who did this. And um, he actually did the legwork on getting this done. And so, as you know, there's a functional and, and aesthetic domain. Uh, and so, this initial paper had, paper had a lot of uh, validation behind it, more so than any of the other ones that I mentioned. But in addition to that, uh, we did further psychometric evaluation of this and published these. Uh, we did what's called item response theory analysis. Uh, which was published in JAMA we, pub- we did then a paper on confirmatory factor analysis and now i can 't get into the the specific statistical psychometric reasons why, but Mikhail Saltichev was insistent that these were really important to make sure this was very well validated the, so we have three papers just on validation, and then minimal clinically important difference tells you what the what the sort of difference in score is that would be important to a patient uh, clinically. The natural history of the scores which happen over time has been published and had the correlation with psychiatric screening tools. In other words, the schnaz can actually be a proxy for looking for BDD in patients. Um, And a number of studies that we published and others now are publishing, I just saw a recent paper from Turkey using the schnaz, just using it to look at various different rhinoplasty techniques, including uh, hump production, um, looking at reductive rhinoplasty, uh, looking at uh, dorsal preservation even. Uh, So um, we're, uh, we're in the process of, of, um, you know, using it for a lot of different things, and we're very happy that it's been translated into 10 languages plus. Uh, others are are on the way, uh, and um, to me, it's a very important thing uh, as part of your practice. And, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of feel like it's such an important part of the practice that I, I feel uncomfortable walking into a patient's room not having looked at what their scores look like, because I understand what the problem is in some cases First of all, whether there's primarily a breathing or an aesthetic issue, and secondly, what specific aspects of the aesthetics uh, are a concern. And postoperatively, you can see how your patients are doing, also. So um, I think it's uh, uh, it's something that's really important for use by all rhinoplasty surgeons. And so, Sam, how do people contact you for that? Um, well, I've distributed it, and a lot a lot of surgeons have contacted me, and have surgeons who've contacted me who want to do the translational studies as well. Uh, so um, we've tried to we made this open access so anybody who can grab the journal can just take it. I mean, there's no there's no fee. It's, it's free, uh, so um, it's uh, it's there for everyone to use. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about psychiatric disease in the rhinoplasty patient? Or should I... Yes. Okay. Very important. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is very this is very important. Um, and uh, I'm going to just unskip two slides here because I think these are interesting to talk about. As well and then we can uh, go from there so as you know and, and the, the incidence of BDD is is high it's known to be high in the plastic surgery population um, and in the rhinoplasty population the literature says it can be up to 43% of patients who come in so the question is how do you screen how do you counsel uh, and um, you know do you give everyone a BDD questionnaire such as the BDDQAS, which um, I believe Filio uh, d developed, which is very nice. I try not to be too onerous with all the questionnaires I give patients. I wanted to know if we could use the Schnaz uh, as a as a screening tool, um, and we did a small pro- prospective study looking at this. And you know, in our study again, we found about 32% of patients um, screen positive for BDD on uh, the BDDQAS. Uh, but importantly, um, the Schnoz can be used as a proxy uh, because uh, if you have a high um, score on questions five, six, or eight, it is uh, probably a good idea to then move ahead and give a BDDQAS questionnaire to see if these patients have BDD. Um, and this is another nice reason to use this. Uh, and overall, if your if your score on sections five through ten is very high in general, um, you should be you should be kind of careful and. You know, we recently published a study looking just at question number five, and um, the, if you have a high score question number five, in my practice, you're you're more likely to need a revision. If you score a zero, one, two, or three, I had zero revisions in, in patients who scored those when I looked over a two-year period. So, just your mood and self-esteem associated with your nose uh, can be a proxy for you know potential problems down the line. And I wish I had had this conversation five years ago. <laughs> I know. And, and so just another interesting study I just want to talk about, this is a good talking point, because, uh, you know, we we look at the work that's been done in terms of psychiatry and plastic surgery patients and all of the studies that have been done looked at the percentage of patients with psychiatric disease within the group that come and seek plastic surgery. In other, in other words, people come to your office, how many of them have psychiatric disease on screening tools? And that's like what I just showed you. But I was interested in the opposite. I was interested in, uh, out of all the patients in the United States, for example, with psychiatric disease, how many of those patients seek plastic surgery in comparison to the general population without psychiatric disease? And so we have access to uh, a database with millions and millions of records of all the insurance claims in the United States with uh, treatments, disease codes, and everything. And so. We evaluated one million records um, over about a couple year period. uh, And we divided these into two cohorts. We matched for comorbidities. uh, Cohort one with no psychiatric disease and cohort two with psychiatric disease. Uh, And we, you know, codes like depression and anxiety and BDD and so on. And again, we matched them so that these are equally healthy in every other regard. And looked at the incidence of plastic surgery procedures over a two year period afterwards. In each group, and then created an odds ratios. So, in other words, what is your risk, if you will, of undergoing a plastic surgery procedure in group one versus group two? As you might expect, um, unsurprisingly, if you have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, BDD, or eating disorder, or other psychiatric disease, uh, as shown below, you have a much higher uh, odds ratio of seeking a plastic and undergoing a plastic surgery procedure. Uh, and if you have BDD, it's the highest. Uh, you are three times more likely to undergo a plastic surgery procedure uh, over that period uh, than somebody without that diagnosis. So it's another way of looking at it. And you think of it as almost a risk factor uh, for your for your patients because you don't want to um, take take patients that, are that might potentially have complications. And it turns out that these patients also have higher risks of complications afterwards, which doesn't make intuitive sense if they're physically the same. Uh, but they seem to have a higher complication rate and revision rate. Uh, And so these are all important considerations. And, you know, as I said, we want to know if we can use the schnaz to predict outcomes for our patients in order to more precisely treat them. And um, I think it's it's proving to be a a valuable tool. And I think we have to be aware of the psychological aspect of our patients that come to see us uh, as well as uh, the physical aspects, because these are all equally important in in their health. And... um, so uh that's kind of uh what I wanted to talk about there. Um and you know, so so what are the next the next steps? I think that um future directions for, from a functional point of view is it'd be really much better if we could really correlate anatomy and subjective symptoms. And I think defining critical points for surgical intervention and understanding this vestibular temperature reception area and understanding exactly why some patients, you know symptoms don't correlate with their physical findings is important for us. And it may be that computational flow dynamics is going to be important for us. Um, And aesthetically understanding the keys to create happy patients, because, you know, there's technical aspects and we talked about it in the last part of the podcast, but communicating with patients more effectively about what you can get with your outcomes, having outcomes questionnaires, so you can tell them what severity class they might move from in terms of functional and aesthetic distress, and understanding who is not a good candidate for rhinoplasty surgery or any other surgery is important uh, for us. Um, and, and thanks uh, again, uh, Cameron, for having me on this this podcast. and And I look forward to chatting with you about about that topic. There.
1: Yes, Sam, hour and a half of just one of the greatest talks I've heard. Eh? It's been so good just to like you taking your Sunday morning off to talk to us and just share. It's. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you
0: very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's just been great. Actually, it's fun to share and kind of riff about this stuff because I'm kind of passionate about it, and I know you are too. And hopefully uh, uh, patients and surgeons will find this interesting.
1: Well, ladies and gents, that concludes Episode 2 of the Rhinoplasty Podcast. Thank you so much for Sam for how much he taught us about preservation rhinoplasty, about patient-related outcome ev- measures and evidence-based medicine within rhinoplasty also a major shout out to medicon for sponsoring this med hold who are the suppliers for medicon instruments in south africa really appreciate us our first month of the rhinoplasty podcast and forward to seeing you guys again next week